You're listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and knowledge of God's people. My name is Tyler Jones. I'm your host. Thank you for listening in, whoever you may be and wherever you may be. May the Lord bless this podcast to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth. On the podcast today is Jason Rowland. He's a senior pastor and one of our elders here at Believer's Baptist and another of our elders, Philip Castleton. And we are wrapping up the month of October, which is the uh, anniversary month of the beginning of this podcast from 2019 to 2020. We have done uh, 50 some odd episodes in the last year, and um, we're not answering questions if I'll remind you real quick that we are actually just speaking to some of the more misused, misunderstood, or misapplied stories within the Bible. So with that, we're going to go to Jason, and Jason's going to talk about Joseph and his brothers. This is one of the most beloved stories in all of Scripture. You're taught as a Christian this story from early childhood. It's this, particularly the emphasis is on Joseph and the coat of many colors. And the story of Joseph has... Um, so many moving parts to it, and it, it really is um, in, engaging. It, you focus in on the story, and as you grow older, you appreciate that the story is more than just the, the coat of many colors, and you understand why the coat of many colors is part of the story, actually. But it, it's a really good story, but I think that the end of the story is the misunderstanding or misapplication of the story. So the story is recorded for us in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And it's really the story of Jacob. The story really is about Jacob. Joseph then just becomes a part of what is happening in Jacob's life. And so that is the redemptive thread that is through the book of Genesis. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph then becomes a major part of the Jacob story. But at the end of the story of Joseph, and probably as a listener, you're familiar with the story of Joseph. He is betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, becomes prominent in the land of Egypt, becomes a person who actually divvies out the grain during a time of famine and saves Jacob's family from starvation during famine. And, of course, that then extends the line of the Messiah as we work our way through Scripture. But the end of the story of Joseph comes to this dramatic scene in which he is making reconciliation with the brothers. And actually what happened is Jacob has died. He's been taken back to the promised land to be buried with the ancestors, all of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, The wives are all buried in one place. And on the way back to Egypt then, Joseph and his brothers, the brothers are fearful now that dad is dead that Joseph is going to take vengeance on them for what they had done years before that. And so they decide that they're going to speak to Joseph. And this is in chapter 50, verse 17. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. They're telling Joseph, this is what dad said to us before he died, Joseph. 
Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Thus the nation of Israel finds itself in Egypt and later becomes slaves. And then we have the whole story of the Exodus. But Philip, what do you think is the common misunderstanding? What's the misapplication? Well, I think that for many people, um, we try to get God off the hook. You know, I think this is, uh, we, we can't understand how actions that we would deem as um, evil could be attributed to God. So we try to get God off the hook. And so what happens is we read a story like this and, um, and we read into it verses like Romans eight twenty eight, you know, which I think is even a misunderstanding of that verse because it's in a context of its own, but which says that, you know, that God is um, working, uh, you know, he, he works all things for good or for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You got it in front of you? I do. And it, it is that, and we know right. that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Yes. So, so they, they, they take what they think that verse means. And they, they read it back into this text. And so, and, and most people misunderstand that verse, as I said. What they think is that God is um, aware of, but not in control of, um, the circumstances that, that happen to individuals. But as he's aware of them, he, he micromanages and, and moves things around in such a way that even though it was a bad situation, he's going to work good out of that situation. I think that's the way most people understand it. Right. Um, I don't think that's what it's teaching at all. Um, I think what it's teaching is that that God is actually working in all things and uh, for the the edification and the building up and uh, the ultimately salvation of His people. So for His own purposes, yes, He's working out His purposes, and sometimes those purposes um, uh, are not how we would understand them. And I think that's what you get here. The text actually says... Let me interrupt you, Philip. Let me just say, his purposes do not necessarily exclude suffering, trouble, pain for his people. Most of the time, they do include those things. Right. Yes. um, As, as, keep in mind, the ultimate goal of God for his people isn't temporal happiness, but eternal happiness. Sanctification and, and salvation. Right. So holiness, not happiness. Right. Um, not that those things are are, are are mutually exclusive, but nevertheless. Um, so we we get to this text, and even though the 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 words are clear and plain, we don't read them the way they actually read. We read into them that Joseph's brothers had had an intention, 
And then God took that and worked the circumstances in such a way that he brought good out of it. But that's not what the text says. Right. It actually says this. As for you, Joseph's talking about his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So uh, if we if we go back and look at that and understand what it's saying, what it's saying is that the action of Joseph being sold into slavery, Joseph being um, well cast into a pit and then you know, the jealousy, the slavery, hatred right, of his brothers, thrown into prison, uh, interpreting dreams. Get, you know, Potiphar's wife. The whole story. We work it all out, and we recognize that that what was intended in, in in all of that by the brothers was that that ultimately Joseph would be destroyed. They hated him. They wanted his demise. Right. right. God intended all of those things, just it, as they intended. He didn't work around their actions and try to make good out of them. God intended them because God was bringing to, to, uh, to an ends his purposes. And he was using, um, like, you, like you said, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, he's using this line of, of men to be the ones who would bring about uh, Israel, the redemption of Israel into, or, or, or into Egypt, the redemption from the, you know, the, the salvation from the famine. And then ultimately he's going to uh, call Moses to being the one who brings them out of Egypt. But in this story, it wasn't that God just took and worked a bunch of um, evil circumstances and he said, man, these are really bad, but I'm going to turn something good out of them. God intended them all. So are you saying that God has participated in evil? No, I would actually argue, and I think we can look at some other text here in a minute, but I would actually uh, argue that I think what's being communicated here is that what makes that particular act evil was the intent behind it. Is Joseph uh, being thrown into a pit evil? The intent on, on his brothers, yes. Mm-hmm. If, if you're thrown into a pit in God's perfect sovereignty to save Israel, answer is no. Right. Is, is Joseph being sold into slavery evil? No, not from God's perspective because God intended to save. From their brother's perspective, absolutely, they intended to destroy. Right. So all of these actions in themselves aren't evil because of... Uh, by definition, what they are, they're evil because of the intent behind them. Right. And God, having the very same actions in mind, superintending sovereignly and in, in, in his providence, you know, bringing them to pass, um, he has one intention, and that is to save his people, while the brothers had a different intention, and that was to destroy Joseph. Right. And I think there's a couple of examples just from the story that actually put forth this idea, for example, is it by accident that a caravan of traders are making their way to Egypt at the same time that Joseph is in the pit? Sure, absolutely not. No. No, there's no way. Right. So God is superintending the Mm -hmm. actions of the caravan that are on their way and then the actions of the older brother to rescue Joseph and say, hey, let's just sell him. 
It wasn't an accident that the famine came and forced them to go back. Right. Right. I mean, uh, there, uh, every circumstance in here, right. uh, it's not had circumstance that Joseph just happened to be born with a gift to interpret dreams. Right. I mean, all of these things. It, it, that right. two men that are very close to the king are in prison, right. which is the only way he's going to get out. The only way he's going to get in is to be um, put into a home of a seductress woman. Right. And is it some accident that that man, the husband of that woman... Um, does it have Joseph killed with the authority that he has? Why did he put him in prison yeah. when he could have immediately said, you're nothing but a Hebrew slave. I will kill you. Yeah. Yeah, he could have. And so, yeah, we can see that all of these things are superintended and, and, and within the, and, and not the within, within the realm. And this is where we make the mistake. We don't want to think about this as a bunch of circumstances, which God is, um, working around and trying to bring good out of. Right. If we if we read it that way, we're we're doing an injustice to the text. What it's communicating to us is that every one of these things were decreed and intended by God for the good of his people. And they're not evil in that sense. Right. But the intention behind Joseph's brothers to get rid of him what was Right. So the the actual misapplication, misunderstanding is a misreading of the story, reading back into the story from a New Testament text. Yeah, and a misunderstanding of the New Testament text. Yes. I don't even think that you're getting the New Testament text right by reading it that way. And because new te- that, that text is written in the context of... of Romans 8 and following going into Romans 9, which is all about God working out his purposes in his people. That's what that text is. I, I, and if you rightly understand that text, then I think it's a perfectly good way of understanding it. Right, right. But if you don't rightly understand it, which is the way most people don't, because they, they think of themselves as autonomous and God as some kind of reactor, then, um, then you know, God's like a big supercomputer, which is able to manipulate, um, you know, circumstances as they happen. But he's not the person who's actually in control of those circumstances, because that would violate your free autonomy. will. Yeah, and your autonomy, and we, God forbid that. So, um, so yeah, that's where I think the misunderstanding happens, both in the New Testament and the Old. Right. Th- this idea that God can't be the one actually um, uh, purposing these things, because right. that would make him guilty of something. I want to get him off the hook, so I'll just make him a really good reactor, a right. really good um, counterpuncher. Which this then um, is a, it's rooted in a low view of God and a high view of man. Mm-hmm. That really is the root of our understanding of these texts. That I we're think so. About. Yes, sir. Well, there's another example in the Old Testament. Yeah. In the book of Isaiah chapter 10. Mm-hmm. And um, this is in fact a text that you a reference to uh, somebody in our congregation just yesterday in answering a question uh, that they had about um, the sovereignty of God and the working of God, the intentions of man. And this is the story of Israel and Assyria. And of course, Israel has rebelled against God and um, thrown off God's um, commands and the covenant agreement that they, the nation, had with God. And so God's going to do something. He's going to intervene. Well, yeah, in in Isaiah, um, you've got Israel being disobedient, and and the Lord is going to send um, Assyria in as his uh, tool 
He's going to send Assyria as a tool to Israel as a means of disciplining Israel. Right. Okay. He does. He sends um, he sends the Assyrian army in, and they do. They they you know they wipe out Israel and they take a bunch of them captive and they do all this stuff. But then God judges Israel for doing what He sent them to do. No, he judges Assyria. I mean, judges Assyria, rather. Yeah. I, said, yeah, I said it wrong. But he judges Assyria for doing what he sent him to do. And we would ask ourselves, why? Why? And this, this brings in the whole argument that um, how can man be responsible if he's not free, right? I mean, is man free to do what he wants to do? And if he is free, then he's responsible. But if he's not free, how can he be responsible? I mean, if God is sovereign, how can man be responsible? Well, this is, this is what it says. Okay, um, he sends them in, and here's the problem: Assyria goes and does what it does, but Assyria does it, and it thinks that it did it of its own accord. Assyria's intention was to destroy Israel. Assyria hated Israel. Assyria would like to see Israel wiped off the map. So Assyria went in with a hatred to do its own bidding, and didn't, and never recognized that God was actually using, um, you know, Assyria to do His bidding. Right, and so. Assyria, in his in its pride and arrogance, boasts of what it has done, and and let's start in verse five, and it says this in Isaiah ten: "Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger." There you see God's sovereignty in this. The staff in their hands is my fury against the godless nation. I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. You see, it wasn't their intention to do what God intended. Okay. And to tread them down like the mire in the streets. It does, he, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not th- so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, uh, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalnol like Carchemish, and like Hamath and Arpad? Is Samaria and Damascus? As my hands has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria? Uh, Samaria and her images. Verse 12. The whole point here is that um, God has sent them to do the work and and their intentions and God's intentions weren't the same. Right. But let me throw this in. Uh, The Assyrians are free to do this. They are free in that they... They want to. Yeah. This is in their their natural uh, proclivity to to do this. This is their desire. Yeah. So they are fulfilling as free people what they desire. They do. Right. But what they don't recognize is that God superintends all things. Yes. Right? right. And if they, if they, if their intent, which it, it couldn't have been, it wouldn't have been because they were, they were lost, they were pagan. But if their intent had been the same as God's, right, right to see Israel um, brought to justice and disciplined, it would have been completely different. Not that it was their place. Right. But it wasn't their intention. He said, God says, woe to Israel, I mean to Assyria, rod of my anger. And then he says, because I'm going to use them to discipline Israel, but that's not their intention. Right. Right? Get to verse 12. When the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by my strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on my thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and, and as one who gathers eggs... 
that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth of the chirped, or opened the mouth or chirped. And and then here's what God says about that: Shall the axe boast over him who uses it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. You know, as if you're holding up the belt, right, to spank your kid, and instead the belt swings you around. <laughs> you know, that's what he's acting like, like he's in control of God. Right. Assyria is so boastful. The axe doesn't swing itself. There's never once has an axe cut down a tree without someone using it. And God's saying, you're nothing but a tool. Right. And if you'd recognize that, you wouldn't be guilty. But you don't recognize it, and in the haughtiness of your spirit, you've done exactly what you wanted to go in and take over um, um, uh, Israel. But do you understand that the action here, right, the action, the thing that, that Assyria intended was evil. Right. The action played out ultimately wasn't evil. It was the intention behind it because in God's purposes, the very same action, Assyria going in and, 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 and taking over Israel, um, actually served as a, as a means of discipline for Israel. Which so, is what God intended. Right. And then, he, you know, he goes on, um, uh, therefore, verse 16, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among the stout warriors and under his, uh, and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning fire. So he actually brings um, judgment on Assyria for doing exactly what God had intended for them to do, and yet they did it with a haughty, boastful attitude, and, and of their own volition, they did it, but didn't give God the glory and the recognition for what was being, what was being transpired. Here again, we have the very same action intended by two different groups, right? We've got God on one hand, Assyria on the other, but the intention behind the intention behind Assyria's was evil. The intention behind God's was um, life-giving and, and instructional discipline. Right. And the intention behind Joseph's brothers was evil. The intention behind God's movement was, again, redemption, redemption yeah. saving yeah. the life of many. We have the same scenario in Acts chapter 2, don't we? Right. In Acts chapter 2, um, this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he is speaking toward the 22nd verse. Uh, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, you yourselves saw these signs and wonders and works that Jesus of Nazareth had did. This Jesus... This very same one, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus himself is delivered up to the rulers and the authorities, that is the Roman government, by the Jewish authorities, because the Jewish authorities could not carry out the death sentence, so he has to be handed over to the Romans. This Jesus has been delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, because Jesus has been crucified from the foundation of the world, the mm -hmm. lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. So God's intention has always been to redeem a people for himself, mm -hmm. and the intention is to save many. Right. And the intention of the Jewish religious elite and the Roman authorities is to kill Jesus. Jesus. Yes. So their intent, destroy this um, rebellious um, antinomian 
right? Anti-law. This criminal. Yeah, this criminal. Let's get rid of this guy. That's their intent. Evil. Right. God's intent, save his people. Right. One is evil, the other not. And, um, but the same action, right. the death of Christ, the, the death of, of this one. And so we, when we think about Genesis uh, 50, Joseph and his brothers, in the context of all this, we can use these other texts to help us understand what is going on. And it is not that we read back into it as, as God's some um, super reactor who's trying to make the best of a bad situation. Right. It was God intending Right. These things. And God is just in his intentions. <laughs> intentions. God is righteous in his intentions. Well, he is by definition. Yeah. Um, a thing, and, and I've heard this before, but this is, it's rightly said, and we should all think this way. A thing is not right, you know, and therefore God does it. Right. A thing is right because God does it. Right. God is, de- by definition, the one who is right. Is right. Whatever he does is right. It's not that he always does that what is right. A thing is right because it comes from God. Right. He's the one who gives the definition to right. Yes. So in all of this, I I think, again, one of the things that we realize is that we come to read our Bibles. We have to read in context. We have to read with the understanding of the redemptive storyline. Again, God is um, the writer. The scripture is God-breathed. So whatever um, contradictions we might think would be there, whatever kind of differences that are there, we have to realize that it is God-inspired, that it is sufficient, that the story um, carries out the plan of redemption, the recording of the plan of redemption, so it doesn't answer all of our curiosity questions. So um, it's not going to explicitly tell us things like um, how to drive a car. Mm-hmm. It's not going to tell us how to um, go um, uh, make a cake. But it's going to tell us the story of redemption. So we read it with that in mind. Mm-hmm. It's not the answer book for every question or every situation or every uh, um, uh, circumstance explicitly given um, and we read it then of course with the um, within the context of the whole Bible mm-hmm. so reading Genesis 50 that we looked at with Romans 28 would be good if you're reading both rightly yes yeah so again that's one way that you read your Bible you don't read it with your reading into it your presuppositions your biases, you don't read back into it the, um, the things that um, define what you want it to say. Um, in, in preaching, we call it you don't go above the line or below the line. Mm-hmm. You, you stay with the main idea. You stay with what the text is saying, and you're not going above or below. Yeah, like we've even talked in, in previous podcasts here um, as we've worked through some of these texts. It's so easy to read into Scripture things that just aren't there. Uh, you know, when we talked about, um, you know, uh, David and Goliath, uh, you know, we, well, the five uh, the five smooth stones meant this, right? right? 
Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that. That would be speculation. Why? why you know, um, you know, with Gideon and the fleece, which we've done. Um, you know, well, the fleece meant that, or you know, th- this meant that. Or we read stuff into this stuff all the time, and we're just not. How, how do you know that? The Bible right. doesn't say that, right? right? But we read that stuff in, and that's going above or below the line. We don't. Right. Uh, well, what we do is we say, okay, Gideon was trying to find out God's will. Yeah. But God's will had already been revealed to Gideon. Yeah. Gideon is acting out of faith, yeah. not in faith, yeah. when he asked for the sign of the fleece. Right. With David and Goliath, um, you know, the five stones, it, they don't stand for courage and loyalty and dependence and, you know, those those kinds of things. There's five stones. I don't know what it, what they mean. Yeah, I've, I've heard, well, you know, um, he had four brothers. Right. That's what you know, I've often heard. And I go, that may be true, but I don't know if um, if this kid from Israel knew that, you know? Right. Um, I, I don't, even if he did, I mean, the way he was acting in, in faith, w- what would make me think that he n- needed it? Right. I mean, you know, we got one person standing under ready to fight. Um, I mean, we just read all this stuff into it. Right. Why, why do we think that every detail has to be allegorized in some way? Right. That's going above or below the line. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the most common texts that talks about this is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, mm-hmm. um, that well, God won't put on me more than I can handle. Mm-hmm. When the verse is, that no temptation has overtaken you, yeah. uh, that That's God didn't provide a way of escape, right. you know. And so we, we, um, we, we do have this great need to read back into the Bible to make the Bible say what we want it to say. Well, we're, tr- we're all, um, uh, you know, have presuppositions and traditions, right? And um, one, of, one commentator that, that I listen to or read a lot often says, and I believe he's right in this sense, or I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't repeat it, but he says, the person who believes they have no traditions is the person most bound to their traditions. And I think that's true because um, if we could just, if we can recognize that we all have, um, you know, preconceived ideas and presuppositions and traditions, uh, then we can come to the scripture and maybe set those aside and let the scripture speak for itself. Right. But if we think we don't, we are probably going to get it wrong most of the time because we're always going to be reading those things through a lens that we don't even recognize we have on. Exactly. Well, uh, this is the last episode in this month of October of 2020, and we've enjoyed using uh, the stories of the Bible to try to help us get better understanding, clearer interpretation. I um, pray, our prayer is that this would be used and helpful uh, to you, and that uh, you've enjoyed the different format just for this month. Um, next month, the month of November for 2020, um, we likely will go back into questions, but we could go into misquoted, misapplied verses of mm-hmm. the Bible, uh, like Philippians 4.13 and some of those that uh, yeah. would be fun to do. So we'll we'll talk about that in the future and uh, see what Tyler tells us that we ought to do. Yeah. yeah. But for now... Um, thank you again all for listening, and again, we appreciate any um, encouragement that you can give, any reviews that you can give, anything that um, would be helpful. We want to be helpful, and may God use this. I do have one question, Tyler, about um, have you ever been hog-dogging? I have not been hog-dogging. Do you know of the best hog-dogger in this room right now? <laughs> well, 
I don't know. Is that self-proclaimed or? <laughs> it wouldn't be me. I haven't proclaimed anything. <laughs> Philip is a hog dogger. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to run dogs on hogs. Um, but now we were talking earlier about somebody I used to be acquainted with who liked having a reputation. And he would, um, he would try to make much of um, every hog he caught online and, and um, really enjoyed the limelight. And so... It was your dog. It was my dog. In your hunting spot. Yeah, but this guy, he um, he wanted to be famous. And if you're going to be famous, you could probably be famous for a lot of things. Hog dogging's probably not mm. on the top of the list for most people, but mm-hmm. it was for this guy. <laughs> right. And um, anyway, yeah. that being said, I wasn't expecting Jason to bring it up two hours later, but <laughs> here he has. I've been <laughs> waiting for um, four podcasts now to get in this hog dogging because yeah, if you could see jason he don't even know how to wear his headphones so <laughs> <laughs> actually he just stuck his hands up and felt to see if he had a right. <laughs> um but there's one thing we do know as we sign off the greatest hog dogger in this room is me is philip yeah, yeah. And i'll take credit for that one <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean if you two are the only guys i got to compete with i'll take credit for that yeah. being yeah. that neither one of us have been hog doggy no yeah. i mean yeah. if, if i gave you a knife and gave you a 300 pound pig you'd probably um cry end up in a fetal position i'd yeah. run for no sure. i would probably stab myself in the leg and, <laughs> and bleed out i stabbed myself in the leg one time but i didn't bleed out thank goodness <laughs> yeah uh, anyway, anyway for anybody who needs to know um i i survived <laughs> yeah, <laughs> evidence by the fact that you're talking now. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't think about that. <laughs> All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast. If what you've heard today has been helpful to you, please subscribe. On behalf of the elders of BBC, I invite you to a worship service at Believers Baptist Church this coming Sunday. The Bible study hour begins at nine fifteen, and the worship service begins at ten thirty. Grace and peace.